Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Don't Live Like a Pagan Gentile, The Words of Jesus and the Worries of Life. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 27, 2011. Right after telling his followers to be perfect, Matthew 5:48 Jesus then tells them don't worry Matthew 6:25 In fact he repeats himself 5 times Don't worry about your life he says Worry won't get you anywhere Why worry about your food drink and clothing Stop worrying And finally don't worry about the future. Matthew chapter 6, 25, 27, 28, 31, and 34. Don't live like a Roman tax collector or the pagan Gentiles, says Jesus, who quote-unquote run after all these things. Instead of hoarding money, give it away. Instead of obsessing about yourself, care for others. Beyond your prudent planning for the cares of life, abandon yourself to a God who is both infinitely power, powerful and intimately personal. After you've hedged every bet and calculated every contingency, enjoy the beauty of birdsong and the fragrance of flowers. Live like what you believe is true, which in fact it is, whether you believe it or not. That God is like a generous father who knows what you need, and a nursing mother for whom it's impossible to forget her baby at her breast. Isaiah 49.15 Don't fret about the future, but enjoy the present moment. And consider the psalmist for this week, Psalm 131, verse 2. I have quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. I probably qualify as a natural worrier. I've taped one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons to our kitchen cabinet. It pictures a man sitting in his living room with a look of panic on his face. He's dropped his book and his hair stands on end. He's yanked his legs off the floor and onto the chair where he clutches them in a fetal position. There's a bomb on the floor that someone has tossed through his window. Shattered glass litters the floor as the fuse burns down. And then, in the punchline, he confesses to his wife, It's all my fault. I wasn't worrying enough. Another cartoon taped onto our kitchen cabinet pictures a man alone in bed at night. He's sitting up, scribbling on a notepad and talking on the telephone. In the caption, he tells a friend on the phone, When I can't sleep, I find that it sometimes helps to get up and jot down my anxieties. And as we look, we notice that every square centimeter of the bedroom walls is covered with dozens of scribbled worries. War, recession, killer bees, aging calories, sex, balding, radon gas, 
and on and on and on. <clears throat> I love these characters with their exaggerated sense of responsibility. I make lists, then mark things off the list after I do them. I'd rather be an hour early than five minutes late. Brooding and internal soliloquies come natural to me. My exterior demeanor is calm, but my internal engines are often racing. At night, when it's time to sleep, I sometimes can't find the off switch. To relax is a challenge. And overcompensation, that's my specialty. Obsessing about a trivial detail, I've perfected the art. As the cartoon puts it, just think of all the bad stuff that might happen if I don't worry enough. I try not to be too hard on myself. My pop's psychological analysis suggests that I inherited a worry gene from my mother. I'm not clinically depressed like she was for the last 20 years of her life, and I don't chew my fingernails like I remember my father doing when I was in high school. But the worrier in me wonders. Anything's possible, and there's still plenty of time. Of course, not all of our worries are merely imagined, not by a long shot. Some of our worries are genuinely real. There are many good reasons to worry. Among my friends and family are divorce, unemployment, eating disorders, bad mortgages, chemotherapy, sleep disorders, and struggling kids who, by the way, have wonderful parents. And, we will look, and when we look at the larger world, of course, there are environmental disasters on an unprecedented scale, the collapse of the housing and financial markets, rogue states, crumbling states like Egypt, and the threat of nuclear terrorism. In the same issue of The New Yorker as the cartoon above, an article called Fresh Hell explores the boom in so-called dystopian fiction among young readers. Perhaps it has something to do with the world they experience every day? The typical arc of the dystopian narrative, writes the author, mirrors the course of adolescent disaffection. These dystopian tales, he says, are about the world being broken or intolerable. Although we manufacture some worries by projecting our anxiety onto the world, other worries are sane responses to an insane world. In either case, says Jesus, if you live like a pagan Gentile who's ignorant of the one true God and who worships false idols, or if you mimic the ways of the world like a Roman tax collector, then you're certain to experience disappointment. The gospel for this week thus anticipates our personal neuroses and our legitimate anxieties, but not in the way we might want or expect. Jesus, observes the Oxford historian Dermot McCulloch, plays by a different set of rules. In the Gospels, says McCulloch, Jesus is his own authority. The coming kingdom that he announced produced outrageous inversions of normality, like paying a worker who worked only one hour an entire day's wages. So Jesus subverts our cultural conventions and our natural inclinations with a sense of relish. 
And such is his advice to us about worrying. Don't worry about your life, says Jesus. Don't be afraid. Isaiah acknowledged that the exiles felt forsaken and forgotten in their exile to Babylon. And so in the Old Testament reading for this week, he reminded them of the God of comfort and compassion. Isaiah 49, 13, and 14. In my better moments, I resonate with the farmer and poet Wendell Berry, born in 1934, in his poem, The Peace of Wild Things. Wendell Berry echoes the words of Jesus about the worries of life. Listen to his poem, The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The world can be wild, as Wendell Berry says, but Jesus says that under the care of his Father, it can nonetheless be a place of peace. And now for further consideration, contemplate on 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Or Philippians 4, 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And finally, for a particular nuance, consider the words of St. Macarius of Egypt in the 5th century who writes, I am convinced that not even the apostles, although filled with the Holy Spirit, were therefore completely free from anxiety. Contrary to the stupid view expressed by some, the advent of grace does not mean the immediate deliverance from anxiety. For books this week, I review Philip Jenkins' The Lost History of Christianity, The Thousand-Year Golden Age of the Church in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and How It Died, New York, Harper One, 2008, 315 pages. <clears throat> When I was in seminary, I didn't learn much about the Nestorians or the Monophysites, except that both were labeled heretics by Protestant, Catholic, and the Eastern Orthodox churches alike. In 431, the Council of Ephesus declared the Nestorians heretical for their view that the two natures of Christ were not united, but distinct. The Monophysites believed that Christ had only one nature, not two, and so were condemned at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Consequently and tragically, as Philip Jenkins writes, 
The histories of both traditions were lost to almost all the rest of Christendom. This is startling for several reasons. Both the West Syrian Monophysites, or as they're sometimes called Jacobites, and the East Syrian Nestorians, or Assyrian Church of the East in what are now Iraq and Iran, affirmed all the decrees of the Council of Nicaea. The Nestorian Patriarch Timothy, from about the year 800, for example, pointed out that the fundamentals of the faith that all Christians shared the Trinity, Incarnation, Baptism, Adoration of the Cross, Eucharist, the Two Testaments, the Resurrection of the Dead, Eternal Life, the Return of Christ, and the Last Judgment. We must never think of these churches as fringe sects, rather than the Christian mainstream, writes Jenkins. That their history remains lost is even more remarkable when we consider the speed, scale, and scope of their geographical expansion, political power, intellectual legacy, and spiritual vibrancy. When Patriarch Timothy became the leader of these churches in the east around the year 780, based in Seleucia on the Tigris River, he wielded more influence over more Christians than the Pope in Rome and perhaps the Patriarch in Constantinople. It's true that the Gospel spread west to Rome and east to Constantinople, but also true that it spread faster and even further east, thanks to the Monophysites and Nestorians, to what are now Armenia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Syria, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, India, Tibet, and even China by the 8th century. These lands and peoples were as much or even more Christian for a thousand years than their counterparts in the West. Jenkins's book is a detailed work of historical retrieval and reconstruction. But just as he restores this lost history of expansion, he also gives due consideration to the near extinction of Christianity in these lands by about the year 1300. This requires a nuanced discussion of what he calls the ferocious organized violence of Islam that conquered many of these Christian lands. And Jenkins takes care not to say too much or too little. Between the years 1200 and 1400, most all of these churches had vanished except for the significant remnants like Coptic Christians in Egypt. By around the year 1900, he writes, the whole Middle East accounted for just 0.9% of the world's Christians, a stunning reversal of fortunes for a once powerful presence. In his final pages, Jenkins moves beyond the confines of secular histories to what he calls a theology of extinction. He inquires what existential meaning for faith we might derive from this story of our Christian forebears. Even if some churches die, the church, capital C, lives on, and the possibility for resurrection rests in the recovery of historical memory. An important and fascinating book Philip Jenkins, The Lost History of Christianity. And for film this week, 
I review a movie called Greenberg from the year 2010. Everyone in this dark romantic comedy is living what Ben Stiller, who plays Roger Greenberg, calls a life they didn't plan. They're trying to discover the meaning of adulthood. Roger Greenberg, played by Ben Stiller, is a carpenter from New York City who's had a nervous breakdown and goes to house sit for his brother in Los Angeles. He's 41. He specializes in writing letters of complaint about trivial matters, is concentrating on what he calls doing nothing, fails at reconnecting with former friends, and muses that not only is youth wasted on the young, but that life is wasted on people. He's attracted to his brother's nanny, Florence, who laments that she's five years out of college and, quote, no one cares if I get up in the morning, end quote. The family dog racks up a $3,000 vet bill with an autoimmune sickness that has him on blood thinners, prednisone, and antibiotics. The movie Greenberg feels like a pale imitation of a Woody Allen movie in which the characters wrestle with their overwrought neuroses. Hurting people hurt people, Florence muses. The title of the film, Greenberg, from the year 2010. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Christina Rossetti. It's called In the Bleak Midwinter. Christina Rossetti lived from 1830 to 1894. She was an English poet. In the Bleak Midwinter. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. But his mother only in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can give him, give my heart. Christina Rossetti, In the Bleak Midwinter. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 27th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.